Believe it or not, we have arrived at the end of 1 Corinthians. That was a bit half-hearted, wasn't it? (laughs) So if you've got a very good memory and can remember just after Christmas, it seems months ago now, it is months ago, um, we're looking at the first couple of chapters and we saw how Paul started off this letter with a big reflection on what the cross is all about. Now we come to the end, the final um, couple of chapters, and Paul, if you like, bookends the whole letter with the work of Christ. And now we get to look at what the resurrection is about. This, however, isn't going to be the end of this series. We are going to come back to a couple of the passages again um, in September. Chris wants to do um, another sermon on love, which would be great, because his first one was so good, we thought we'd have another one out of him. And then um, I also said I would come back and we'll look look at the practical outworking of gifts of the Spirit in the life of the church. So we will come back to those again. But if you want to turn to your Bibles... On page 1091, we're going to read just a section of chapter 15. Can I encourage you, when you get home this afternoon, to read the whole of the chapter? It is fantastic stuff, but there just isn't time to do it all justice this morning. So reading verses 1 to 8, and then 50 to the end of the chapter. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then reading from verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, these are amazing words this morning. Encouraging, uplifting words. I want to pray that we will hear the challenge of what you say to us through your word this morning. And that these words will encourage us in our hearts. They will take root and they will be transformative to us. 
but I don't know how all of us have arrived in church today. I don't know whether we're here with burdens, with things that are just weighing us down. Lord, if we are, would you lift our eyes to see what is ahead? Would you help us to look back and see what you've already done? So that we may live in the truth of the gospel, knowing that one day you will return and we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I was stood in a busy railway station. It was during that, you know that really, really hot weather we had? When the temperature was like 33, 34, and we were all complaining how hot it was. And then this last week, we've all been complaining how cold it was, and we're never happy. But it was so hot on this particular day that the trains were being delayed because the, tra- the tracks were having issues with them. Points were not working properly and everything had to slow down. And there were literally, the departure hall was like this. Hundreds of people milling round in the heat, looking to see which trains were being cancelled, which were running late, and which were actually going to run on time. Now, my train was due to leave at half past seven in the evening. But the announcements had nothing on it. It didn't have when the platform it was going to come in on. It didn't have the time it was going to arrive. So I'm stood there with everybody else, hot, bothered, wishing it was cold and raining. And then suddenly, it pings up, delay. Ten minutes. You'd have thought this was about three hours by the reaction of the people round about us. This woman stood next to me, audibly sighed. She went, oh. She said, first of all, it's leaves on the track. Then it's the snow. Then it's the frost. Now it's the heat. Why does this country grind to a halt when anything happens? And you're there thinking, 10 minutes, 10 minutes delay, that is 0.7% of my day. You can do the maths later when you get home if you want, but I think that's right. 0.7%, how dare Virgin Trains rob me of 0.7% of my day to keep me safe? But you could feel the stress with people round about. You could feel that sense of tension. Because, you know, it's stressful not knowing, isn't it? It's stressful when the future is unknown. And then just about a minute before the train was about to leave, Eventually, the platform number pinged up, and the train was leaving on platform 12. Well, you should have seen the speed in which everyone moved. It was like we were being chased by a pride of lions right the way across the station. And again, more stress. You know, everyone's thinking, surely this train will leave without anybody on board, and will just disappear off into the distance. But actually, no, it didn't. We all got there, got on the train, and with a few minutes, everyone starts to relax. You can feel the stress disappear. Laptops come out, books come out, crisps come out, drinks come out. People start to put their feet up. Those aren't my toes, just in case you want them. <laughs> Mine are far nicer than that. No, not really. Well, you know, sometimes... <laughs> but they're not painted, just in case you are wondering. I'm going to get rid of that picture. Let's go back to that one. But life sometimes can be lived as if we are on the platform of a station... As if there's all these unknowns coming up on the board. Because life is full, let's get rid of those again, of things that we don't know, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen that quote. There are known knowns, there are things that we know that we know. There are known unknowns, that is to say there are things that we know now we don't know. But there are also unknowns, there are things we do not know we don't know. And each year we discover a few more of these unknown unknowns. I'm sure you all understood that as we went through that. But we can find ourselves asking questions about life. Will we make the right choice? 
Will we make the right decisions? Will we get through life at all in any meaningful way? Will we get sidetracked or delayed? And it all becomes very stressful. We can spend the first 30 years of life trying to work out what we'll do when we grow up. We then spend the middle of part of life wishing we'd done something else when we'd grown up. And then the final part of life wondering what life would have been like if we had done something different. And it can all get very stressful and very anxious. I don't know whether you've noticed as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was a very stressed out church. They were a church that was almost, I think, about to blow up. I think if Paul hadn't have intervened, there wouldn't have been long left for them because they'd have just been at each other's throats. As we've seen in the previous 14 chapters, they were all over the place. There were problems with leaders and division. There were problems with sex. There was problems with what food they could eat, how they took communion together, how they used the gifts of the Spirit, whether they should speak in tongues all at once or individually, whether it needed interpreting, how they used the gift of prophecy. There were things about spiritual posturing and trying to look impressive because he had particular gifts. You name it, the church in Corinth had that problem. And they were a church that, if you like, were existing in the kind of departure hall of Christian life. They set off on the Christian journey, but they hadn't really got going in any meaningful way. They'd taken their stand on the gospel. Do you notice how Paul says, take your stand on the gospel? Interesting words there. The gospel is true whether we stand on it or not. But stand on the gospel and you will be saved. But what we find in Corinth is this way of existing has been a very stressful way of being church. A kind of anxious spirituality, not rooted properly in the gospel. It became far more about showing off spiritual gifts than it did for knowing where they were heading and who they were in Christ. And stress and conflict was literally breaking out all over the place. So what Paul does is he brings in one final big topic to encourage them with. And it's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in turn, he goes on to talk about their own resurrection when Jesus returns in glory. If you like, what Paul is trying to do is to get the church out of the departure hall and get them onto the train, knowing where they're heading. Just keep that image in your mind. He also wants them to look even further ahead, to remember that they too, if they're in Christ, if they stand on the gospel, will be raised on that day when Jesus returns. So what he does in verses 1 to 8, if you've got the the Bible in front of you, he wants to remind them of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. See, there's a problem in Corinth. Some people were getting led astray by all kinds of strange teaching. And they were sort of thinking that actually resurrection, well, they didn't have a problem with spiritual resurrection, but physical resurrection, that was something they were struggling with. They sort of developed this way of thinking that thought that the body itself was so evil it could possibly be of no use to God whatsoever. So only the spirit would be saved. And they were then applying that to Jesus as well. And they were getting the total wrong end of the stick, and Paul here has to correct them in what they're thinking. Because, you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus, is what set Christianity apart from every other way of thinking in Paul's day. There were Greek myths, there were Roman stories about the dead coming to to visit the living, but they were still dead. You know, ghosts, those type of things, myths. There are no accounts of people claiming to have risen from the dead. This is what sets the Christian faith apart. You know, it's still what sets the Christian faith apart from any other way of thinking or any other major world faith or religion. If you've got any friends who are Muslims, talk to them about their view of Muhammad 
They don't believe he was God. They don't believe he was raised from the dead. If you knew anyone who's a Mormon, talk to them about Joseph Smith. They don't believe he was raised from the dead or that he was the son of God. They will claim them to be prophets. If you look at some of the Eastern religions, say Buddhism or Sikhism, they're not rooted in historical fact in the way that Paul here roots Christianity into the resurrection of Jesus. So what he does here is he sets out, here's why you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the evidence I can give you. Have a look what he says. He says, first of all, Peter, that's Cephas, saw him. If you've got really good memory, you can remember the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. Cephas was talked about as one of the people who was an important leader in the early church. Remember Peter? He saw the risen Jesus. Remember the 12, the apostles? They all saw the risen Jesus as well. And then you get this 500 people. You know, that's probably, what, three and a half times the number of people who were in church this morning encountered the risen Jesus. He appeared to them. They are witnesses to what they saw, not just people making claims. And Paul basically says here, you know, some of these people are still alive. In fact, many of them are. It's almost a challenge to Corinth. If you don't believe me, go and check it out. Make a visit to Jerusalem. Go and find some of these people who've seen the risen Jesus and talk to them. Now, what is really interesting here, 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD or thereabouts. Jesus rose from the dead somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. That's a gap of 25 years or possibly as short as 22 years. If you're over 27 and you're in church this morning and looking around, that's probably the majority of us with some notable exceptions. You will remember things that happened 20 odd years ago. If you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, it probably seems like 10 minutes ago. I don't know what it feels like beyond that. You'll have to come and tell me a little bit more. But 20 years shrinks the older we get, doesn't it? So if I ask many of us this morning, recall a memory from 20 years ago. Anyone do that? If, if you're under 27, you're excused. Put your hand up if you can do that. And recall memories. Yeah, I can recall memories quite easily, as if they were yesterday. Paul says there are these people still alive. People who might only be in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, who you can go and check this stuff out with, who you can check it out that it's fact. Paul's point, the resurrection is historical. Jesus rose physically from the dead, according to the scriptures, as I have told you. Believe on it. Stand firm on it. This is the gospel which saves you. Verse 4, Jesus died for your sins and was raised. And then verse 56, the sting of death is sin, but its power is gone. For a church to be on the right track, holding the resurrection central is absolutely key. If we lose the resurrection, what does Paul say? We are to be pitied. We lose absolutely everything. But he wants them to look beyond that, because there's more. He then leads us to look at our own resurrection. Verses 50 to 54. We will be raised just as Christ was raised. We have a destination greater than we could ever imagine. There used to be a quote that was said of some Christians. I don't know if you've ever seen this quote before by Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. I don't know who he is, but here's the quote. Some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. It's the kind of idea that perhaps um, some Christians are so focused on what is coming, so focused on being in heaven with Jesus forever, 
that actually they forget about the mess of the earth. They just turn a blind eye to it and they're, they're just railroading into, into glory sort of thing. Jesus doesn't call us to be like that. He doesn't call us to have that kind of mindset. You know, we were in Chester last night and we, we went to a concert. We were being very civilized and going to hear an orchestra playing. We hadn't realized Chester Racers was on. So there's me and Claire and Nathaniel Timothy's over at Spree, so he wasn't with us. And we were literally walking around Chester, seeing people falling over, seeing people being sick, seeing people all over the place. And it was just to remind you, you know, we live in a world that is in a mess. We live in a broken, desperate world. We ended up eating in a backstreet chip shop because we couldn't get in anywhere else. But not that that's a really issue regarding to this. But it was just a mess around the place. You know, young girls sat in alleyways, just slumped over, just literally being sick on the street. And you think, what a broken world we live in. We don't want to be of no earthly good. The gospel has to resonate in the here and now. But actually, one commentator on this passage has inverted this and says he actually finds this. Some Christians are so earthly-minded, they are of no heavenly good. That sometimes we are so focused on this earth that actually we're no good for sharing the gospel. We're no good for telling people about Jesus. We just haven't got enough of a sight of eternity in us to be of any use to the Lord in getting the gospel out there. You know, when I read that one, that was the one that sort of, if you like, hit me in the stomach and made me go, ouch. I can feel some truth in that in my own life. Now, we may be very sophisticated this morning, and we may be in this place because of a theological imbalance. We may be thinking, actually, we want to see so much of the kingdom of God here and now that we've forgotten that it won't yet be complete when Jesus returns. I have to say, I'm not that sophisticated. I'm probably there because I think too much about myself, and I don't think enough about God and about Jesus returning. Think for a moment. What do you pray for the most? Is it for yourself? Is it for your own needs day by day, the things you want, the things you want for your family or your friends, or is it things on an eternal perspective? Is it for somebody's salvation? Is it for your own spiritual well-being? We owned a a house in Epworth where we moved from about just under two years ago now, and when we moved, um, we rented this house out to the person who then became the minister of the church that we'd just moved on from, and it worked really good because we had a good tenant we were able to give him a a discount on the house because we didn't have to pay estate agents' fees. And then in January this year, um, he spoke to me and said, I'm going to be moving out at the end of the tenancy. He'd got married in the intervening period and wants to get a house with his wife. So we were left with a house with a mortgage on it that was going to become empty. So we prayed about it, we sought God over it, and we thought, we're going to put it on the market. We'll see if we can sell it. We've got a three-week window that we can afford to do before we need to rent it out again. Otherwise, we're paying a mortgage on a house that is empty. A bit complicated, but that was the situation. I was away in Wales with a friend of mine when Claire rung me about, was it about a day after the house had gone on the market? Saying within half a day, it had sold for the asking price. So we thought, God has answered our prayers. And he he did. You know, this this sold, it went through, the house is, is no longer ours. But we're then left with very practical questions. You know, at the moment, we live in the manse through there. We don't exactly have a a long walk to church, but it's great living there. And 
The problem is we don't have somewhere to live when we retire at the moment. Now, that's quite a while off. But we've got to keep, we've got to be sensible. We need to keep on the housing ladder and those kind of things. And so we're left with questions. Do we get a bike to let? Do we do a holiday let? All those kind of things. But you know, it's really brought me up short. The amount of time I've spent praying about that. The amount of time that I've spent seeking God over this. There's a couple saying, are we missing something? Why is God not answering our prayers at the moment? And then I read verse 40. Have a look at verse 40 if you've got it there. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can houses, nor can our cars, nor can our job promotions, nor will even our current state of health or our bank balance, nor will our children's education or all those good things that it's appropriate for us to think about. But they are not that important because they're not heavenly-minded things. They're the concerns of earth. Job 1, verse 21, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. You see, nothing of sort of basic material value will enter the coming kingdom. Nothing. Yet how often do we get focused on the earthly stuff that we lose our heavenly perspective? So look what Paul does here. He offers the church a total refocus, a recalibration, if you like. Do you want that? (laughs) On your gravestone. Remember me for my stuff. I hope God would have something better to say about me when I meet him in glory. I hope other people would say something slightly better as well. So Paul offers us a refocus. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Paul sort of lets his language soar here. I love the way you get this change of of the way he writes. And this just becomes these broad strokes of language, pushing words to the limit to try and understand what he's talking about. But this is a mystery here. You know, as the Christians, we have to live with mystery. We will not fully grasp what he's talking about here. There is no scientific formula that tells us what the resurrection body will be like. There is no scientific formula that can explain the events that Paul is talking about here. But rather, what we get is the call of God, the trumpet, the sound of God speaking. The trumpet throughout the scriptures is that symbol of God's voice, of his power, of his authority. And then what do we get? We get in verse 53, we are clothed with immortality. We will be physically raised with Christ. Whether dead at that point when Jesus returns or living, we will be changed into something imperishable. And think of all those things that will end at that point. Pain, suffering, ill health, anxiety. All of these things, God says he will wipe away and there will be no more tears and no more pain. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. That is the focus of where we're heading if we are in Christ this morning. If today we have taken our stand on the gospel and are saved by grace through faith, this is what awaits us. Paul is making this um, declaration to a church that is going horribly wrong but are still up for being disciples of Jesus. 
Now, Paul is not saying this is universalism. This is not something that just applies to people outside of Christ. But this is to those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you, perhaps you're hearing this for the first time this morning, you're thinking, well, this is all a bit bizarre. Strange language, all this talk about being raised with Christ. And you're not sure of your own faith, and you're not sure of whether you've taken that stand on the gospel. If that's you this morning, you know, do come and talk to me or Richard or one of the other leaders. We would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to have confidence in faith in Jesus. Stand firm, Paul says. Let nothing move you. And in a sense, what we get, if you look at verse 58, is Paul's so what from this passage? There's a bit of application coming. Because of the destination, labor for the gospel. Share it. Don't move from it. I'll just read verse 58. It says, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I was left thinking here. Let's just go back to the departure hall for a minute. With all its stress, with all its unknowns, with all its changeability. You know, today, if we live without the hope of the resurrection in our hearts, Paul offers us the best we can do. It's just a series of things that we can't know. A journey without destination. If you've got the passage there in front of you, we didn't read this, but look at verse 32. He says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Life is not much without the resurrection of Jesus. Life is not much without the thought of our own resurrection. Paul just quotes there, one of the Greek philosophers, they'd have known that saying. It was a well-known saying. We can stress and we can worry all we like, Paul is saying. But unless we've got that hope of the resurrection in our hearts, actually it's nothing. We just stay in the departure lounge. The journey doesn't continue. But for Paul, for the church in Corinth, the call is to do something different. Look up, look out, see what God has done. See how he has raised his son from the dead. See how we too will be raised and be with him in glory. If I was to ask a question this morning and say, who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I'm not going to ask you to do this. But I imagine if I said, put your hands up, a lot of us would put our hands up. If I was to say, who believes in your own resurrection? I think a lot of us would probably also put our hands up. Because if we believe the Bible, this is here, this is what it talks about. But then I want to ask myself a so what question. What does this mean for us this morning? Do I worry less? Because I know where my destination is heading. Do I allow myself to look up and not get too bogged down in the stuff of this life? Because I know that actually I will be with Christ forever. Do you serve the Lord joyfully for those things that will last for eternity? Or are you still wrapped up in that stress of the departure hall? Do we take mission and evangelism so much more seriously because we realize what is coming and that there'll be those who will not enjoy that and will actually face a lost eternity? Does it strengthen our resolve? Or, this morning, if we're honest with ourselves, have we actually given practical head knowledge assent to the resurrection? But actually, it's not resonating. It's not filling every fibre of our beings with hope. Are you joyful in the morning because Jesus has risen? 
be truthful. Are you? Do you have peace at night? Because Jesus has risen and we too will be raised. Or actually, are we still stood in the departure lounge, frantically worrying about all this stuff? And Jesus is there saying, come on, put your hand in my hand, follow me. Stop worrying, look out, look up, see what's coming. See that one day I will return. Verse 55, death has been swallowed up in victory. What amazing words of hope, amazing words of good news. See, Christian faith is rooted in the work of Christ, his death for our sins at Calvary, the amazing confirmation, the affirmation of the power of the cross as Jesus is then raised in glory, the defeat of death and the powers of darkness on Easter Sunday. Paul says, this is fact, stand on it. But then we look to the vision for the future. Jesus will come again. He will come again. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be in our lifetime. But he will come again. And we will, dead or living, be raised with him in glory. And so in light of this, get focused, get ready, recalibrate, get on that train, know where we're heading, and live life differently. I think that's where Paul would leave us this morning. Are we prepared to do that? Let's pray.